Hello, everybody, and welcome to your live event. My name is Eric Weinkoop, and I'm the Director of Culinary Instruction here at Ruby. And I'm also one of the chef instructors in the courses that we offer. Uh, today's live event topic is a special one. Uh, I'm going to spend the next hour or so uh, providing an overview, an introduction, a discussion on Indian cuisine. And uh, the approach that I'm going to take is through the lens of history and culture uh, as those attributes uh, shape significantly the Indian food that we see today, both uh, you know, in India, of course, but uh, also overseas. Uh, I'm based in the U.S., and so I'll make reference to uh, Indian cuisine that we experience through uh, restaurants and even home cooking here. Okay, uh, you know, as I get started, I also want to give a special welcome to the ACTE high school culinary instructors that are in the audience today. Uh, the goal uh, is to provide each of you some information, uh, some context that you can take back to your classroom or your teaching lab and share with your students as you discuss and you study Indian cooking with your students. Uh, go ahead and uh, you start out with some data uh, as I provide a little bit more context to my introduction here. Uh, you know, I've been lucky enough uh, over the years to uh, make several trips to India and to travel around the country. My, my home base, I'll say, uh, has been in the state of Maharashtra and specifically in the city of Mumbai, which is on the west coast of India. And I've also had the opportunity to conduct uh, some funded food research on two occasions uh, in India, uh, the first time as a Fulbright scholar, and uh, the second opportunity uh, through support from the Art Institute of Portland here in Oregon, uh, where I was a faculty member for um, just shy of a decade, uh, both in the culinary arts department and the liberal arts department where I taught food anthropology. And um, so uh, India is a place that's near and dear to me. Uh, my spouse is also from India. And so I have uh, an extensive, extensive uh, network of kin uh, in the Maharashtra area. And um, so, you know, as we start out the talk today, I wanna share um, some really basic points uh, just to sort of situate India in your mind. Um, all of these factors also touch upon the food culture as well, okay? So located in South Asia and often referred to as the Asian subcontinent, uh, you know, India is a big country. It's about one third the size of the United States by area. And uh, it's got a population of... Um, Oh, just shy of one and a half billion, second only to China, just by a little bit uh, in its population. And uh, due to its relatively smaller size, it's got uh, some high population density, as you can probably imagine. You know, and as you travel about India, just about wherever you go, certainly in any um, uh, big cities, medium cities, smaller towns and villages, you see people out and about at all hours of the day. It's just an exciting place. Uh, teeming with life. Um, you know, India has got a number of neighbors, uh, some of which um, are more outspoken 
and are in the news with some frequency, and others are more quiet. Um, but starting from the west, western side, we've got Pakistan, and then sharing a long northern frontier is China, and uh, kind of tucked in between China and India, nestled up in the, uh, the Himalayas, is Nepal, um, and then further east is Bhutan, and then as you take the turn south and southeast, we go past Myanmar or Burma, and then also in that area is Bangladesh, uh, and then farther south uh, down the east coast is the island nation of Sri Lanka, not too far off of the Indian mainland. Okay, uh, you know, India is also significantly the home of a number of major religions. Uh, Hinduism, uh, which is the primary, primary religion in India, uh, and then Buddhism, uh, which now is a, a very much a minority religion in India, instead having uh, taken on popularity through much of the rest of Asia. Uh, there's also Sikhism and Jainism, uh, that are some of the um, again primary religions that um, found that had their birth uh, in India. Uh, uh, regarding political divisions, there are 28 states and eight union territories. Uh, the union territories generally uh, tend to be smaller geographic areas, with the exception of Jammu and Kashmir uh, in the far, far north of India. But all the union territories are administered by the national government in Delhi. And, um, you know, India has um, 23 official languages, but closer to 400 or so uh, languages in total as we look at uh, many of these smaller uh, regional um, populations. And then vegetarianism um, accounts for this is about 30% of the population, and most of those folks are going to identify as, as Hindus, all right? Um, now, I'm going to um, test your geography a little bit, okay, uh, as I continue to situate India in the world. This is going to be important as we think about uh, forces or influences that have played out uh, upon the food, uh, the food culture uh, in India, and what we see currently uh, in restaurants in the U.S. as well as on tables in India. Okay, and so uh, you know, India again is sometimes referred to as the subcontinent. And if you look at the Asian continent, uh, you know, we can see that uh, India resides right along the center line, but sort of hangs down, um, and. Uh, it's an appendage of sorts from the Asian mainland. And running across the, uh, the northern border, kind of at an angle, you know, from northwest to southeast, is the Himalaya mountain range. And, um, you know, significantly here, if we go back a few thousand years and we think about the Silk Road and the network of trade routes over land, that make up the so-called Silk Road, um, you know, we can draw a continuum basically from the Mediterranean basin. And so if you look at the African continent, just north of Africa, that body of water, that's the Mediterranean Sea. And so that whole area around that, uh, including North Africa and uh, Europe, 
is uh, the Mediterranean Basin. And to the east uh, of the, the Mediterranean is Turkey. And from Turkey, you know, the so-called gateway to Asia, uh, we have the Silk Road overland routes that uh, took people and ideas and products back and forth to China. And so it, it went, um, uh, you know, among other uh, routes through Persia, modern-day Iran, uh, up through the Stans. And if we follow um, uh, the countries in the direction of India, we've got Turkey, we have Iran, we have Afghanistan, and then Pakistan before we get to West India. And then north of there, we've got Pakistan and Kazakhstan, some of the other stands as they're sometimes referred to as. And uh, the Silk Road then went further east through Urumqi uh, in Muslim Western China, uh, and then farther toward uh, the eastern regions of China. And so if you, again, get Asian mainland, Asia is positioned uh, right smack dab in the middle of uh, There were routes that dropped south uh, from the main trunk lines into India um, to bring you know, in and out of their uh, spices and dried fruits and nuts, and it eventually textiles and, uh, again, ideas and people as well. And then, you know, as part of the Silk Road, uh, um, there is a, a network of maritime trade routes. And it, very early on, the maritime trade routes were characterized um, um, by activity performed by Arab traders. And so those Arab traders originated uh, in what would be different countries today around the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, you know, ranging from the, kind of the, the northeast corner of Africa through the Red Sea down toward the Horn of Africa, uh, and then on the other side of the peninsula along the, um, the Persian Gulf. And so those traders, um, again, thousands of years ago, plied the coastline up the east coast of Africa, down uh, the west coast of India, up the east coast of India, and then down uh, the coast of Myanmar and into Malaysia and what is Indonesia today, and then even up north from there into the Philippines and Vietnam and the east coast of China. Uh, and that was a very busy uh, pathway and uh, lots of social activity. And once again, India was situated uh, right smack dab in the middle of the trade. And so whether it was nutmeg or mace, uh, coming out of Indonesia, um, that stuff um, um, found a home in India, uh, consumers, and then eventually um, uh, propagation there as it made its way through the Middle East and then into uh, the Mediterranean Basin and the consumers in Europe. Now, you know, as a lot of us are aware, uh, it was those emerging European colonial superpowers that wanted to bypass the Arab traders and the high prices that they were charging. And uh, so that's when the Europeans set sail to find a direct route to India. And probably the best known example uh, is Christopher Columbus. And as we know, he quickly got lost and ended up in the Americas. 
Uh, and then just a few years after that, in 1498, Vasco da Gama, he left Portugal, came down the west coast of Africa and around the, the Cape of, of Good Hope, and then up the east coast of Africa, and then eventually to the west coast of India, okay, into modern-day Kerala. Uh, and so that's how uh, a lot of the early trade took place that started to move food uh, you know, ingredients from one place to another around the globe. And so things in India, uh, most of the spices moved out of the region and many ingredients, um, uh, nuts and, and fruits and um, cooking methods moved into India overland uh, from the Northwest and uh, ingredients came in over the ocean ways as well. Okay. Uh, this next slide here takes us uh, uh, and gives us a close-up of India. And I mentioned uh, Kerala, which is in southern India uh, on the west coast, colored blue. And that's where Vasco da Gama originally landed. And it wasn't long before the Portuguese set up um, a trading post, which morphed into a colony in Goa, uh, just north of there, kind of... Um, uh, pinched between Maharashtra and Karnataka. And Goa, interestingly, uh, remained a Portuguese colony for about 400 years until 1961. And so until some pretty you know, modern times here. Um, the, the Portuguese also had uh, some outposts farther north on the Indian West Coast. If you take a look at the small print, you can see Daman and Diu and Dadra and Nagar Haveli, uh, those were also Portuguese colonies, um, Portuguese ruled until about 1961. Now, uh, you know, in, in the meantime, uh, other French colonial or other European colonial powers came to India, including France. And just as a side note, you know, I'll mention that on the east coast of uh, this map of India, you can see some dots with circles around them and, and um, uh, with the name Pondicherry or Pondicherry. Um, the, there are four of them, three on the East Coast, and then there's a, a fourth Pondicherry um, uh, in Kerala. All four of those were under French um, control for a period of time. The British finally uh, took them um, after a, a, a battle. And, um, you know, that marked uh, greater British influence in uh, the subcontinent. And um, so the, the British uh, eventually uh, encroached, um, intensifying their, uh, their, their trade and commercial activities, um, you know, until uh, they were a dominant force in India for a period of time as well. Okay. Um, so... Let's uh, just a little bit of a historical snapshot, you know, in terms of some of the different overlays of influence uh, from the uh, early Arab traders, um, you know, even predating Islam, um, into the, the more, um, you know, I'll call it uh, relatively modern era, right, of European colonialism, uh, with a number of players um, uh, vying for commercial interests in India. So the, the, uh, in, in this next slide, um, I want to mention very briefly that the 
influences very significantly on the cuisine include the trade partners through time, uh, as well as conquerors and the various religions that find their home in India, uh, as well as the geography, of course. And, and these are common themes as we study food and food culture across the world. Okay. And I do want to emphasize that. And, uh, you know, as, as um, we move forward with today's talk, you know, I also want to uh, preface uh, the, the, the following slides by saying that, you know, India, uh, as I alluded to earlier, is just an incredibly interesting, diverse, sort of intense food environment. And uh, you know, as you look at uh, the various regions and 20 states and you know, sub-regions within the states, they each boast their own food culture. Um, and, you know, as you move a few kilometers in this direction or the other direction to, uh, to the next town or village, you, you can start to notice changes uh, in the food um, patterns and the foods that are available, but the climate change is moving from coastal areas inland, for example. And so um, along the way, you can pick up on subtle shifts in eating patterns. And certainly as you travel across larger distances, uh, those differences become more magnified and it's just easier to recognize. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, as we Talk about uh, India, and if you look at the literature on Indian food, uh, you know, including a lot of the information online, uh, you're going to see that uh, some sources will divvy up India um, into the uh, roughly northern region and the southern region and make broad comparisons. Uh, others will divvy up India uh, into quadrants. Um, aligning with northeast, south, and, and western regions, and will try to um, sort of characterize the way people eat and live across those very broad areas. And now, while there are some patterns that can emerge, um, there's just a tremendous amount of nuance and variety. And so, you know, as I talk about some of the the structures or some of the framework um, by which you can approach Indian cuisine, um, please you know, understand that in between the lines that we, that we talk about here uh, is just so much variation, um, you know, from village to village and certainly from household to household, and especially in this contemporary uh, globalized era that we live in today where the movement of finances and ideas and things like food, right, as well as people uh, is very intense. And um, um, people in India have connections all over the world uh, due to immigration and uh, the, the, um, uh, the global Indian diaspora. Uh, so, you know, again, just kind of keep that in mind as I introduce some of these um, things to consider uh, as you start to analyze and study recipes and approach Indian food in your own way. Okay. 
And um, so, you know, on this slide, I want to, again, just introduce some, uh, some basic overlays of influence or culture that still have an imprint on food and food culture today. So I, mean, I mentioned the Arabs. Um, coffee, you know, as many of you probably know, uh, is said to have originated in Eastern Africa, uh, in what is today Ethiopia. And that um, product made its way north, uh, you know, into the Arabian Peninsula, and um, eventually, the traders uh, carried that product into India. Um, you know, such that today, while the, the entirety of uh, India enjoys a tea culture, um, the southern regions of India have a notable coffee culture as well. And uh, that's been in place for a long time. And I will say that, um, you know, in the more contemporary era, let's say the last century or so, uh, coffee shops in uh, these southern areas of India have been associated with the intelligentsia, the literati. Uh, they were places for people to gather to consider, you know, how they might oust the British uh, and so on and so forth. And so they, uh, these coffee shops play an important role uh, in the history of these regions as well as the social development. And then, you know, if we take a look at uh, today's uh, contemporary culture, especially in the urban centers, uh, you know, we'll see that there is a coffee shop culture much akin to Starbucks. And, you know, the, uh, the shops that uh, I have uh, frequented and enjoyed uh, tend to be domestic Indian corporations, um, but they, again, are generally uh, like Starbucks in terms of their feel. And uh, those um, dot uh, the urban centers of India today. Uh, moving down the list to the Portuguese. Um, the Portuguese are credited with introducing uh, significant ingredients from the New World, and namely tomatoes, potatoes, chilies, and corn. And um, these are all from uh, Mesoamerica. Think about modern-day Mexico. Uh, you know, these are um, uh, as, as well as um, areas of uh, northern South America in terms of uh, the potato. But, um, you know, these, uh, especially the first three, tomatoes, potatoes, and chilies, are staple foods uh, in Indian cuisine and food culture today. I mean, I, I uh, can't imagine um, a meal uh, absent these three ingredients. I mean, imagine, just imagine Indian food without chilies. Uh, and then also imagine that as little as 500 years ago, uh, these, uh, these ingredients were absent. Uh, and, uh, you know, instead the pungent flavors were coming from ginger, uh, from black peppercorns, and from piper longum or long pepper. Uh, these are all still commonly used in India, but... Um, uh, overshadowed by uh, the beautiful capsaicin heat of chilies from the New World. Um, corn. We often don't think about corn in India, but uh, corn is a common grain uh, that is grown, especially in the interior, uh, in these more arid regions that are not rice-growing regions. And um, 
you know, corn then appears commonly in the form of a flower, ground flower, along with wheat and sorghum and uh, a few varieties of millet uh, to make up um, staple carbohydrates uh, in the diet of Indians. And, and these are, you know, corn is something that doesn't appear on restaurant menus, for example, in the U.S. Uh, very often at all. Um, you know, I associate it more closely with home cooking, where so much of the beautiful food of India still resides. Um, under the, uh, the British, um, we have the tea culture, um, which was brought from China to India uh, as the British set up tea plantations. Uh, today, uh, tea is grown in southern India and, and, and uh, all the way up uh, into the northeast regions. And you know, those plantations are often referred to as tea gardens. And they are indeed beautiful places. Uh, nicely manicured bushes, bright green in color, um, you know, contrasting against um, the, the brown walkways, the, uh, the dirt pathways in between the bushes, uh, and against the nice uh, blue skies that you often see in these areas. And, um, and then the last item, Chinese um, influence on food is, is very interesting and quite significant. Um, China, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, shares a long um, land border to the north uh, and has also had contact via the maritime routes uh, with India for a very long time. And uh, significantly, you know, once Buddhism came about, say 2,500 or so years ago, and was enthusiastically um, uh, exported and, and uh, taken up in China and beyond, uh, Chinese monks uh, came to India to study and uh, you know that really began an intensification of exchange between India and China um, around a, a lot of different subjects. Um, certainly, uh, spirituality and, and um, the, the um, literacy, you know, around the written word, um, texts for for monks to study, and, and food is part of that as well. What we see today is that um, Chinese food is enjoyed across the country, especially in urban areas, and we see its influence on Indian restaurant menus in the U.S. as well today. But these Chinese dishes, referred to as um, Indian Chinese, or sometimes Chinese Indian or Chindian dishes, um, are not notably Indian uh, you know, in their style, but Chinese in their inspiration. They're dishes that you probably are not going to find in China, um, although you know they're characteristically Chinese, uh, you know, in a certain way, um, but with more ginger and more more chilies and garlic and and um, uh, sort of uh, massaged and and twisted in a way to really fit the Indian palate. And so, if you have a chance uh, to try out some of the these uh, Indian Chinese dishes at a restaurant, please give them a try. Um, it's a, a refreshing twist on Chinese-inspired dishes. All right, uh, next up, um, the conquerors. And, you know, arguably there have been a number of um, 
conquering parties, uh, you know, or groups to come into India, especially over land, uh, over a very long period of time, most notably uh, through Central Asia uh, and in through Northwest India. Um, and very early on, uh, there were Turkic groups um, that uh, travel a, a long distance to get to India. And um, um, Alexander the Great uh, made it there in, in 321 BC. Uh, but most notably, uh, it's the Mughals that left their imprint on the culture uh, significantly in the northern regions of India uh, and uh, very much so in the food of today. And the Mughals uh, are Central Asian Muslims um, with a connection to Persia, um, you know, modern day Iran. And um, you know, in terms of their conquest of um, India, um, you know, that started in the early 1500s and uh, stretched into the mid 1800s. Um, and you know, among other things, uh, the characteristics that they left on the food uh, are a, a strong dairy culture, uh, you know, noted by heavier, richer sauces um, that envelop very beautiful preparations, many of which are meat dishes. Uh, and then also uh, those folks brought in uh, nuts and fruits, and especially dried fruits that they introduced to uh, some classic Indian preparations. Um, and if, if we think about these regions uh, of Central Asia, uh, many of them are temperate, uh, they enjoy higher altitudes, and so we see walnuts and pine nuts and almonds, um, you know, as well as apples and cherries and figs um, that were brought into the northern reaches of uh, India in particular. And, uh, you know, those things today are grown in what are the foothills of the Himalayas and in these uh, somewhat cooler and, and temperate climate zones. And um, uh, th this very last line I have for you on this particular slide um, is just a short list of some examples uh, that are attributed to the Mughals. Um, so, you know, some of these um, uh, rich uh, baked or fried pastries, many of which are stuffed. Um, in the case of the samosa uh, with potato, vegetable, spice fillings, uh, and, and sometimes with a minced meat filling. Uh, and then also beautiful rice dishes, the uh, pilaf or pulao, uh, a classic dish from Persia. Uh, and it's uh, sort of upscale, more fancy cousin, the biryani. And uh, the biryani um, historically has been associated with um, the grand banquets um, of the privileged classes. And in uh, you know more modern society, uh, a, a family might enjoy biryani um, to celebrate somebody's birthday. Uh, or to mark some other special occasion, such as a graduation from school. And uh, so a, a biryani could take some time to prepare uh, with its layers of vegetables and, and oftentimes meat, and the addition of many spices, 
uh, and uh, blossom waters to add some uh, additional layers of um, a beautiful aroma uh, to the finished dish. And uh, there are many different styles of biryani um, that have emerged uh, in both northern India as well as southern India and points in between. Um, but the common denominator is that, at least historically, they have tended to be associated uh, with the Muslim communities and um, the Muslim royal um, uh, houses or ruling classes. Uh, today, of course, they're enjoyed by anybody. And, and here in the U.S., uh, we're seeing biryanis uh, offered more and more commonly at Indian restaurants, especially some of the uh, regional um, uh, menus that are being featured. And so, uh, you know, we can easily... Um, you know, uh, spend 20 or $25 and enjoy biryani every week if we wanted to, which uh, on one hand is fantastic because it's delicious food, but on the other hand, it's a little bit unfortunate because uh, the, the, the celebratory nature uh, is lost, right, when uh, these special foods uh, can be consumed too frequently. Uh, regarding religions, um, again, I'm going to provide just a, 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 a sort of a, a high-level historical, maybe traditional, call it orthodox connection uh, between these primary religions that we find in India and some of the rules around food associated with each. Okay, um, Hindus uh, are known for abstaining from beef consumption, and you know, as I mentioned early on in today's talk approximately 30% of the country identifies as vegetarian. Uh, and uh, that's going to be most closely aligned with the Hindu majority population. Uh, Muslims uh, avoid pork. And um, Buddhism is associated with vegetarianism. Uh, and, and this is uh, a general affiliation. Um, you know, historically, Buddhist monks um, have uh, notably made an exception, especially during times of illness, uh, where they were permitted to eat the flesh of animals, uh, you know, believing that um, they would get greater uh, nutrition uh, to help in the healing process. Um, but still, vegetarianism uh, is, um, in a significant way, in India, as well as outside of India, associated with vegetarian practices. Uh, the Jains, um, uh, many Jains will avoid root vegetables uh, because they, uh, their goal is to avoid the killing of any life, including little critters that might be attached to root vegetables. And then notably here, um, Jains as, as well as uh, some Hindu Brahmins will avoid onion and garlic consumption. Uh, because onions and garlic are associated with um, stirring up the energies uh, within the body and heating up the body, uh, which is associated with um, enhanced carnal desires. And uh, so uh, the, uh, some of the, uh, the Hindu uh, uh, Brahmins, at least some of the subcasts, uh, associate a more refined lifestyle. Uh, with their station in society, at least historically. And so they have opted to avoid onions and garlic. And uh, there are uh, pockets of, uh, of 
Christians, uh, Christian communities throughout the country. And um, generally speaking, uh, the, the, the Christian population does not have proscriptions uh, like the Hindus or like the, the Muslims might. Uh, now, as I share this general overview, I also want to emphasize that there are plenty of exceptions to all of these guidelines that um, that I uh, have just uh, mentioned. Um, you know, I have met many Hindus that, that will enjoy a hamburger uh, here in the U.S. Um, I've got uh, Muslim friends that enjoy pork and um, Buddhists uh, that have um, butchered animals and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, again, while these might be general trends, uh, sort of uh, ideals um, that might be more true among orthodox uh, devotees of these religions, there are uh, plenty of exceptions uh, among individuals, okay? Uh, and then regarding the geography, as with anywhere in the world, the, uh, the topography and uh, where people live in conjunction with the land uh, definitely shapes what they eat, what they have access to, uh, what they might trade, and overall how the food culture develops. Um, you know, in the case of India, um, you know, it has uh, well over 7,000 kilometers of coastline, uh, which means that seafood cooking traditions abound uh, in much of India. Um, now, interestingly, when I visit Indian restaurants here in the U.S., I see very, very few seafood uh, um, dishes on the menu. You know, for example, if there are 40 dishes on the menu, I might see four seafood items. And um, it's, it's unfortunate because so many beautiful preparations um, are associated with these uh, coastal um, traditions. And uh, they include finfish and shellfish. Um, you know, as well as uh, a robust coconut economy. And the coconut economy means that uh, many people in these villages uh, who um, uh, manage uh, coconut groves and, uh, you know, harvest the products, uh, make a livelihood from it. And in some cases, they are um, selling the, the coconuts whole uh, for consumers to enjoy the water, so coconuts as a beverage. Um, the um, coconuts might be sold at a fairly young point, shortly after harvest, so that the uh, soft, succulent meat can be enjoyed in certain preparations. And um, in some cases, they're split open and dried, uh, and so that this uh, cobra, as it's uh, called, at least in some areas, um, is sold, um, you, you know, it has a long shelf life, uh, and then it can be grated uh, and then incorporated into dishes as needed. Uh, you can, you can uh, also, you know, um, add some water and blend it, use coconut milk. Um, and then, of course, from the trees of the coconut palms, um, you can harvest building materials for houses, uh, for walls and roofs. And then also, uh, in uh, at least in my experience in coastal areas, uh, there's also a, a tradition of producing alcoholic beverages called toddy, 
from the um, the sap and the water uh, of the coconut blossom. And uh, you know, in uh, those places where you're lucky enough to come across um, the toddy tappers, those that tap into uh, the blossoms, uh, you can just take your own bottle. You know, maybe it's a 1.5 liter, you know, empty water bottle. Have them fill it up with this uh, coconut um, um, elixir of sorts, this water, and it's 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 refreshing. It's light on the palate. It's got a touch of sweetness, and uh, anyone can enjoy it immediately. But as it sits throughout the day, it continues to ferment. Uh, and so if you want a little touch of effervescence from the fermentation um, in midday, you can enjoy the beverage then. Or if you want a little more of a buzz in the evening, just hang on to your bottle for a few more hours. Uh, and uh, you can enjoy a very nice uh, beverage. And, um, you know, India is um, you know also home to uh, major rivers as well as uh, secondary uh, rivers and, and lakes. And so there's a tradition around freshwater seafood, uh, both fin fish and, and shellfish. And probably most notable uh, in terms of regions would be the, uh, the eastern uh, area of India in what is today the state of West Bengal. And if we erase the border for just a moment and um, kind of look at the country of Bangladesh, and the state of West Bengal in India as a single region for a moment, that whole area sits on what's often called the Gangetic Delta. And uh, it's, a, it's a massive area uh, that is made up of uh, the, the, the delta from the river Ganges and the Brahmaputra River. Um, and uh, all those uh, fresh waterways then uh, have uh, been the source uh, of food, nutrition, and, and so much more for the uh, people of that region. And uh, in terms of Indian culture, the state of West Bengal, you got the city of Kolkata, uh, and uh, the, the, uh, many of the classic preparations um, are uh, going to focus on fresh water fish. Uh, as well as rice cultivation. So some, uh, a lot of rice and vegetables are grown in the rich soils uh, of the Gangetic Delta of Eastern India. And uh, if we move away from the coastal areas into the, the inland of Indi uh, India, much of the interior uh, consists of what's called the Deccan Plateau. And now along both the east and west coasts are the coastal ranges. Uh, and then once we get over the western Ghats and the eastern Ghats, we get into this um, hilly, um, overall higher elevation area, uh, which is generally characterized by um, a relatively more arid uh, climates, very hot in the summertime. And this is where we have a lot of grains that are grown. Agriculture is... Um, uh, the driver of the economy. And this is where we find the, the wheat and corn and the sorghum and the millets uh, that are grown, uh, enjoyed as staple foods, as well as exported to you know, other uh, towns and cities outside of those areas. And then, of course, to the farthest uh, northern reaches of India uh, is the foothills of the Himalayas, where, you know, as I mentioned, nuts, 
and uh, temperate climate fruits uh, are enjoyed. Um, the next few slides are going to focus on uh, what I think of as really a framework or a structure uh, for many Indian preparations. And if you can uh, take a look at uh, the information on these slides from a, a high level, so to speak, and um, you know, understand that, for example, these common spices uh, are enjoyed all across the country in the cuisines of every region of India, um, but in different proportions uh, to characterize more strongly one region over another, for example, um, or those adjustments might reflect um, individual household preferences. Um, but uh, again, if you're considering setting up uh, an Indian pantry of sorts, then you know consider these spices to begin with, certainly, and then you know you can add to this list depending on the the recipes or the dishes that you want to produce, and you know just what it is uh, specifically that uh, you should have in your individual pantry. And then the last three items of this ginger, garlic, and fresh chilies, often green chilies, um, are incorporated into dishes in their fresh form, uh, very often in a, as a paste or a puree. Okay, um, chilies can be put in whole as well, but very often these are prepared as a as a paste or a puree, whereas the spices above you know, are used in their dried or semi-dried state that we normally expect, um, you know, spices to be presented in. Um, I mentioned cooking oils here because, uh, you know, at least historically, um, you know, some uh, cooking oils or fats are more strongly associated with some regions of India. And, you know, to this list, I would add sesame oil. Non-toasted, just uh, straight, straight up sesame oil. Um, India uh, having a, a very, very long prehistoric um, sesame uh, oil industry. But uh, so today, just as we see in the United States and in so many regions of the world, these inexpensive refined oils are present everywhere. Uh, they tend to be inexpensive. Um, and they're easy to use, right? They don't impart any flavor uh, to the dish. Um, but uh, these others, you know, whether it's you know, peanut oil, you know, maybe moderately so, but certainly ghee, which is clarified butter, and mustard oil, uh, coconut oil, and I mentioned sesame oil. You know, these all have a more distinctive flavor, uh, such that you know, if a uh, particular preparation, sort of in, it, in this uh, more traditional form, calls for, say, mustard oil. It may be evocative of a West Bengal preparation, right? Or a dish from the state of Bihar, which uh, is neighboring to the north and northwest of there. Um, you know, coconut oil uh, is used, you know, in some regions, especially in some coastal areas. Uh, to characterize some of the the, uh, the regional cuisine flavor profile, okay, uh, but also understand that you know, with, again with the movement of people and ideas and food products in this contemporary globalized era, 
Uh, we find people using really all of these different cooking fats, um, you know, in, in a given region. Uh, as people modify their cooking styles and, and tweak a, a regional recipe. But, but again, do understand that with the flavors of these oils that permeate the dish, they can evoke the flavors of a particular regional uh, cuisine profile. All right, and the next uh, slide looks at souring agents. Um, now, you know, as you know, many of us are aware of, right, the, the, among all the tastes, um, at a very fundamental level, the sour taste is really important. And it is right there neck and neck with salt uh, in terms of bringing interest to the palate. And therefore, we think uh, about within the context of Indian cuisine, uh, how we use souring agents. And, you know, lime juice and tamarind, uh, kokum, uh, which is sometimes called an Indian plum, uh, you know, is available semi-dried or dried. Um, and then it's, it's simmered in sauces and in a uh, you know, liquid medium to draw out its flavor, its sourness. Um, vinegar, uh, said to have been introduced by the Portuguese, uh, as well as amchur, green mango powder, and anardana, which is pomegranate seed in its ground or powdered form. Uh, those are the classic souring agents that are used across the country. I'm sure there are others as we drill down deeper into some of the regional um, cuisine traditions. Okay, but these are common souring agents that I would recommend any cook be familiar with uh, as you delve into um, Indian cooking. Okay, and the last two items are asterisks. Um, I have included um, because they impart a tanginess or a sourness as a secondary attribute to their function in dishes, okay? Um, in Indian cuisine, broadly speaking, leafy green vegetables play an important role. And um, uh, we don't see them very much in the United States. Um, probably the classic preparation is uh, a is palak paneer, and palak uh, referencing, um, in, uh, you know, in, in these specific uh, recipe preparations, spinach, um, but uh, it can also include other leafy greens like mustard greens. Um, now, in the case of some of these uh, more sour greens, uh, an example is gongura. Uh, gongura um, appears uh, in um, some areas of, of southern and uh, eastern India uh, and is a, a leaf uh, akin to sorrel in its sourness, just to give you an example. And it's used as a vegetable primarily, but secondarily, you know, it lends sourness to a dish. And so it helps balance some of the other heavy earthy elements in the dish. Uh, and then yogurt plays a special role in the Indian kitchen. Uh, where it is often used um, as a marinade and tenderizer for meat preparations. Uh, and then also uh, is used uh, as the body itself um, for certain preparations. So there's, a, as an example, a category of, of, um, uh, of preparations called cutty, uh, which is yogurt uh, that is uh, thickened and stabilized with basin, which is chickpea flour. And then to that, you'll add 
um, green chili and the spices and, and um, often other vegetables to create this yogurt-based dish. Now, in that context, uh, you know, yogurt uh, is used as the body of the dish, uh, but secondarily, uh, you can um, offer the tanginess of yogurt to play through to the end, okay? Hence the asterisk uh, on those last two items, okay? Uh, moving right along, um, when we think about um, you know, uh, building uh, Indian dishes, um, what is sometimes referred to as a thickening agent um, or you know, maybe more broadly could be understood as making up the body of the dish, it, it's saucy component, um, often referred to as gravy by Indian people, um, consists of onion or tomato or a bell pepper puree. And uh, it could be a combination of those or they could be used singularly. And certainly there are other examples too, but these are some common examples that you're bound to come across. Um, coconut puree is also used. And this is where uh, you might use um, uh, grated coconut and uh, you know, as it's combined with uh, spices and other um, aromatics, it's then put into a blender uh, to further uh, make that smooth in consistency and then um, you know, added to or added back to the pot uh, to continue cooking. Lentils um, are an important ingredient that uh, add to the, the body or the thickness of a preparation such as dal. Uh, and then um, in the same category is gonna be the basin or chickpea flour. And as I mentioned, uh, a classic uh, example is going to be the category of dishes called cutty, where basin is added to yogurt as a thickener and stabilizer uh, for that yogurt-based preparation. And then there are also nut and seed pastes. And I've listed a few common examples. And uh, these can be used singularly or in combination with uh, some others here. Um, but they're all uh, fairly commonly used throughout the country. And once again, uh, you know, as you travel and, and uh, drill down into, you know, some interesting regional preparations, you know, you're bound to come across other examples. So please keep an open mind to those. Now, next, uh, I want to provide a basic sort of a framework or structure of building many dishes, okay, in the uh, Indian repertoire. And, and not all dishes will follow this uh, structure, but uh, it is fairly common. And so as you start to uh, investigate recipes, uh, you'll probably start to recognize uh, some form of this structure uh, being present. And uh, step one is to fry whole spices in oil to draw out the flavors into the oil. Um, and then the, you know, the oil itself will uh, sort of permeate uh, the dish and, and the other ingredients to spread those spicy flavors throughout. Um, number two, those the, the body ingredients that, that you're working with. So for example, onion puree, uh, would be combined with, I have written GGC, but looking down below the ginger garlic chili, right, in their fresh paste form. 
because those things burn pretty easily on their own, they're combined with the moisture of pureed onion and then cooked together. Um, after which, if you're using a tomato puree, that would be added. But the tomato is optional, it just depends on the preparation. Okay. And after that cooks, um, you know, for a few minutes, uh, step three, you're going to add your main ingredients, uh, which are commonly vegetables or, you know, some sort of a, a, a meat uh, that's often been uh, marinated or prepped in some fashion. Uh, and then at that point, uh, you're going to do some more simmering and addition might be done, okay, after step three. Now, for some richer you know, heavier um, sorts of preparations, you might go into steps four and five, right? Where a nut or seed paste is then added, that's cooked down a little bit, uh, and then the whole pot is gonna be finished with the addition of more spices that have been bloomed in oil, again, to draw out the flavors of the spices, that is then poured over the top of uh, the finished dish, sometimes served like that, but other times gently folded in, uh, nonetheless sort of folded in uh, just prior to service. And that's referred to as fordney or tudka. And so step five is much like step one, right, in terms of drawing out the spice flavors. Um, step one uh, provides um, a, a foundation Right, that's allowed to cook for a longer period of time. Um, whereas the step five addition of spice flavor uh, gives you that, that last minute finishing hit of fresher toastiness on the palate. Okay, so think about this structure um, as you uh, investigate Indian recipes. Okay, again, it applies to many dishes, although not all of them, of course. And um, sweets, right? Uh, we think of them as desserts in the U.S., but sweets more broadly. Uh, there is an incredible array of sweets that come from uh, all regions of India. And uh, you know, note that um, most of them are going to be served at room temperature or even warm. Um, and the, the typical exception is going to be kulfi. And kulfi is a frozen dessert. Um, that has a Muslim heritage. And so it um, reigns from the, the high elevations of the uh, Central Asian um, you know, cooler areas. And a kulfi, um, I mean, kind of like ice cream, right? It's a frozen dessert, but it's not churned. It's just a set frozen dessert, um, often flavored with fruits uh, or nut purees like pistachio. Um, you know, or it could be uh, reduced uh, milk or cream for a, a, a nice richness. Um, and these are based on many different ingredients, um, different meaning, different from what we might see in the Euro-American tradition. Some examples include rasmalai, which is a dairy-based preparation, in this case based on paneer, uh, that is uh, presented um, in, a, in a, a condensed milk sauce flavored with um, pistachio nuts and, and cardamom and uh, saffron. Uh, Soan papri um, is kind of a sponge sugar 
sort of a preparation that's based on basin, which uh, you, you might remember as chickpea flour, so a, a variation on legumes. Uh, carrot halva is a very popular preparation based on, on vegetables, grated carrots, uh, with some sugar, some ghee, some spices, and uh, jalebi, uh, which is based on a fried batter, just in, and then um, soaked in um, a, a kind of a, a high density syrup, simple syrup. And then katsu katli, uh, in this case, based on um, cashews. Um, but there are certainly many, many other nut-based sweets, okay? And uh, we see some of these here in the U.S., especially where there are Indian communities in places like Chicago and in New Jersey and um, the suburbs of Vancouver, B.C. Um, and you can enjoy these traditional Indian sweets, and I hope that you will check them out. They are beautiful to look at, um, and they are tasty and just really interesting um, and a, kind of a, a fun area of food to investigate. And then, uh, you know, lastly is the sort of style. Um, you know, we certainly see um, ceramic plates and spoons and even forks that might be used. And if you're in a Western dining context and knife, you know, would be a part of that as well. But in this traditional setting, uh, Indian food is served on what's called a kali. Uh, which is basically a, a, a round plate, kind of a large format round plate. They come in different sizes, however, uh, with small bowls set on the plate. All of your menu items are presented at once um, around the periphery with rice uh, typically featured in the center. Uh, and then you would enjoy that with your right hand. Okay. And um, you know, while we might typically come across a tali, the plate itself, uh, that service is referred to as tali, and the plate itself is referred to as tali. And uh, typically it's going to be made of metal of some sort, uh, but there are certainly areas uh, where you might see a banana leaf that's used, and the food's presented uh, in a very similar manner to what you would see on a, on a tali. Uh, and in areas where you uh, don't have coconut uh, um, uh, or but banana leaves, rather, um, you will see the use of uh, banyan tree leaves. And uh, so anyway, that's uh, um, an old tradition of some biodegradable serviceware. All right. And uh, so thank you very much. Uh, you know, this brings to conclusion the slide portion. Um, of the talk today. Um, you know, what I want to do next is um, kind of shift over to some of the questions. And I see that there is a, a nice list of uh, questions that have, uh, that you've populated the, the right-hand side of the screen with here. I'm going to get to just a subset of these, okay? Uh, and then the remainder of these, um, you know, I will respond to offline. Um, just privately. And then certainly, uh, you know, if you want to continue this conversation at all, feel free to reach out to me uh, at support at ruby.com. Okay, remember that Ruby is spelled R-O-U-X-B-E. All right. So let's start with the first one. And this is from Adair. Hello, Adair. It's been a long time. Hope you've been well. 
Um, when making vegan palak paneer using tofu instead of paneer, uh, is there a trick for getting tofu to have a paneer-like chewiness instead of just a mushiness? Ah, so this is an interesting question. Um, I don't know if I have the perfect answer for you, Adair, but uh, let's suggest uh, you know a few things that come to mind. And of course, um, so much of um, a food's textural preference is individual. Um, but the first one is to uh, look for an extra firm tofu, and uh, in, and see if that maintains that uh, that more dense chewiness. Um, that you're after. And I certainly understand that, you know, as um, many styles of tofu heat up thoroughly, uh, they become really soft inside. Um, another uh, thing to consider is once you dice the tofu to uh, fry it uh, on, on each side in order to create a light crust. Um, which adds a little bit of chewiness, a little bit of integrity to the, you know, the, the dice of tofu. And um, that's going to give it a different mouthfeel and see how you might like that. Uh, and then the last thing that comes to mind is to consider a different type of uh, tofu. It's a freeze-dried tofu called koya tofu. And um, you'll find it in Japanese grocery stores. And... Um, you know, see how you like that. Um, the the freeze drying process um, ends up uh, giving the rehydrated tofu a different mouthfeel, a different texture, and uh, just see how you might like that. Those are the ideas that come to mind. All right, thank you. Okay, and uh, Aruna asks, uh, what spices would you recommend to start? A basic Indian pantry. Love Indian food. Looking forward to this event. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Aruna. And uh, you know, I'm going to refer you to that uh, slide um, that I, I uh, touched upon a few slides back. Um, you know, that will touch upon some of the the more common spices that tend to appear across the country. And uh, again, noting that. Um, you know, a particular recipe that uh, you want to experiment with may call for an additional spice or two or three, um, but that list will be a great place to start, okay? Um, and then the next one also by Aruna. Uh, do you have any tips on making Indian chapati or roti? I never seem to know what the texture of the dough is supposed to be like, and I can't roll around rotis. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is uh, a fun question. It's a challenging one because texture is difficult to describe, right? Um, now, uh, you know, as with, you know, dough in general, um, chapati dough should be uh well hydrated, thoroughly hydrated, um, not sticky, right? But it should be soft. Um, and then, uh, you know, as you portion it out to, you know, your whatever your individual weight might be based upon the size that you want, um, you know, some folks will use uh, flour um, when rolling it out, and then some folks use oil 
And um, so, you know, give it a try either way to see uh, which one you might prefer, which might be easier to handle. Um, and then also, you know, at home here, the rolling pin that we use uh, for chapatis is a little bit thicker in the center, and then it tapers a little bit toward the end. And so, you know, as you're rolling, um, uh, the, the dough tends to, to rotate on its own, which is helpful uh, in creating that ideal round shape, okay? Now, the other part of that is it takes a lot of practice, okay? Um, you know, people like uh, my mother-in-law have made, I don't know, maybe a million of, uh, you know, these chapatis in her lifetime and with ease, right? She's, she produces um, round, consistent diameter uh, chapatis at each mealtime. Um, but uh, for many cooks that are just starting to to to, uh, to make this type of flatbread on a regular basis for their family, this is indeed the challenge. Uh, and so it's it's practice, uh, and it's also um, mindful practice, so that you can see how the dough shifts and moves with each movement of the rolling pin. And to move that rolling pin from the center to the edge and back again, adjusting the pressure. Okay, um, but do give that a, a try. Okay, and, and expect to roll out many, many more uh, chapatis. Um, all of them uh, better than the last one. All right. Okay. Um, let's see. The next question from Michael. Please discuss curry 101. Uh, as in origin types, how grown and processed? Okay, so interesting question here. Let me try to uh, tease this um, apart a little bit into maybe two sub-questions, okay? And the word that um, sort of got my attention here is grown, okay? On one hand, we have a, a plant, an herb, okay, called curry leaf. And curry leaf provides a distinctive flavor, okay, um, to the uh, to, to certain Indian dishes. And uh, you know, in India, you commonly find curry leaf fresh uh, at the market or um, um, sold by street side vendors. And then around here, um, uh, we'll find curry leaves fresh at the market. And if they're left over, you can easily dry them and then use them in the same manner. Um, a common way to use curry leaves uh, is to fry them, you know, with uh, spices, either in that first step or that fifth step, right, that I mentioned on that earlier slide, in order to draw out those aromatic oils to add a, a unique earthiness uh, to the dish. Uh, note, however, that the, the dried version um, has much less flavor uh, than the fresh, okay? Uh, but do be careful if you're using the fresh version because the oil will splatter much more from the moisture that's present, okay? Now, otherwise, you know, when I see the word curry, 
I think about uh, you know the this category of of um, wet preparations, at least um, you know within this uh, the English language context. Maybe not just English, but let, let's uh, focus on on the U.S. here, right? Where when we think about Indian food, uh, people always, uh, or not always, but often, you know, think about curry. Um, and so, you know, curry comes from uh, a Tamil word meaning sauce. And so generally speaking, uh, when we use the term curry, like, hey, let's go get a curry uh, or let's make some curry. Uh, we're referring to a preparation that has a sauce or a gravy component. So it's got some wetness to it, um, you know, as, as a style of preparation. Um, but they can vary tremendously, okay, in terms of the ingredients and even, um, you know, the base ingredients of the sauces, all right? Uh, the term curry was popularized by the British, uh, you know, in India. You sometimes hear the word curry or curry used, uh, but more often than not, the dish that's being referenced has its own name. Um, and again, from, let's say, an American perspective, we might say, hey, that looks like curry, um, you know, but the Indian cook might call it something else more specific, you know, to their, um, you know, regional language, okay? Um, you know, in terms of, um, uh, you know, curries, you know, I'll mention a, a couple of sort of broad distinctions. Um, you know, a, a lot of these uh, preparations will call for dried spices in the, in the form of a blend, right? some sort of a masala blend, masala meaning spice. Um, in some areas of southern India, there's a tradition of using a, a wet spice blend. And so you might, uh, you know, combine some uh, dried spices, but then also incorporate um, that in to make a, a paste along with uh, ginger, garlic, chilies, and lemongrass, and, and maybe some other things, um, you know, akin to some of the wet curry pastes that we associate with Southeast Asian cuisine. And uh, this is one of those um, uh, sort of threads that, that uh, link um, this area of southern uh, India with the uh, regions of Southeast Asia, you know, through climate um, and geography, as well as many, many years of trade, okay, as knowledge and products move back and forth, okay? So, Michael, you know, I hope that uh, helps uh, in terms of thinking a bit about what a curry might mean, what that could be. Um, it's a very general term used more in English. Um, and, you know, an exception would be in Japanese, um, where curry uh, was introduced in the 1800s by British sailors. And uh, today, um, kare rice, uh, curry rice, um, is a very, very common uh, food in Japan, both at home as well as in restaurants. And so the word curry in that context has entered the Japanese language. Okay. Uh, and then next up, um, let's see here. Uh, let me just take one more question. Okay, I want to be uh, respectful uh, of everyone's time here, and we're 
um, already going into some overtime here. Uh, but this next one is by Davey, who asks, what's a whole food plant-based substitute for coconut milk in Indian food recipes? So um, interesting question. Let me, uh, you know, first say that if, if you want to focus on, you know, a plant-based uh, cooking, then certainly coconut milk fits the bill, right? Um, if you want something that's a little bit more whole, uh, you know, in its state of processing or having been processed, then rather than coconut milk from a can, let's say, um, you know, you might use grated coconut, uh, which is going to have more of the fiber of the coconut present. Uh, and then that can be pureed, blended, and then otherwise incorporated into a recipe, okay? Uh, you know, with water or whatever the liquid, um, usually water, um, you know, might be in order to create uh, the, the coconut milk, sort of a body that you might be looking for, okay? Um, yeah, but I mean, otherwise, uh, yeah, coconut milk is going to be from the plant. Okay, um, so uh, let's go ahead and uh, bring to a conclusion. Okay, the uh, Q and A session at this point. As I mentioned earlier, I will follow up with you individually for the questions that are currently posted, um, and then also if you would like to continue uh, this discussion uh, in your own context, whether it's your, you know, concerning your students in the lab um, or some experimenting in your home kitchen, uh, I'm happy to have a discussion. Uh, please reach out to me at support at ruby.com, okay? And in the meantime, I wish you all a very flavorful and happy cooking. Thank you very much. <laughs>